Please, if you will, uh, take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you want to use one of these Bibles in the pews, it's page 959. I've been doing a series from the book of 1 Corinthians and um, remind you before I read uh, verses 12 and following that the Apostle Paul is, is writing back now to a group of believers in the uh, metropolitan city of Corinth where he had planted the church. He had led many of these people to faith in Christ. He had organized the church, and then he had moved on. It's been about five years since he was there, and they have written to him a letter asking about a number of issues, this being one of them, the issue of spiritual gifts. This is the second part of uh, really one sermon that began last week on chapter 12 where he addresses spiritual gifts. But I'll, I'll begin reading in verse 12 through the the end of the chapter. Hear God's word. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many, If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, you you tell us that your word is profitable, useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we ask you to use it toward that end now. May your Holy Spirit be present. In Jesus' name, amen. It was 1962. 
Afternoon, right after school, a man named Lou and a friend walked home from Marshall High School in Oregon together. For weeks, they had been told about the partial solar eclipse, and they wanted to witness it. So for a few seconds, as they were walking home from high school, they glanced up at the sun. They looked at the sun as it was a sliver as the moon slid over its surface. And while watching, Lou saw flashes of light, much like he would after having a picture taken with flash bulbs or so forth. And he had no idea that those flickers were permanently damaging his eye. And he said, we both got burned, my friend and I. He got the left eye burned and I got the right eye. And so for the past 65 years, he has seen a sun-shaped black spot in his right eye. Now, with that encouraging opening illustration, I want to begin the message today. I've got my glasses. I plan to take a look tomorrow, but I don't plan to look long. I did ask someone after the first service, do you think, it, could that happen to the top of a bald head? I mean, where you had like a tattoo of a... a... <laughs> today, there is much emphasis on the body. And we think of that, that one small part of that man's body, the eye, affected for years. Uh, so many years since then, 55 years have gone by. But we put great emphasis on the body. Think how much of our time is spent just dealing with our bodies. We dress them, we feed them, we protect them, we insure them, we medicate them, we relax them, we rest them, we clean them, we do surgery on them. I mean, to, to a fault, in our culture at least, more value is put on a person based on his or her appearance than probably almost any other thing, like I said, to a fault. And Paul, in this passage that I mentioned, is, is teaching on a subject they had written to him asking questions about, and it's the subject of spiritual gifts. Primarily the first half of the chapter, and last Sunday we, we looked at that. You can go back and listen to that sermon if you want to online. It, it, it tells about gifts, and I don't want to repeat that. Now he transitions to how those gifts are used in the church, and he compares the, the body of Christ with the body of believers, with the human body. Now here's a definition I gave, and it's a basic definition, and probably there are better ones, but this one seems to make sense to me, a definition of a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is an endowment of ability by the Holy Spirit distributed to every Christian for the purpose of increasing and building up the body of Christ. One more time. A spiritual gift is an endowment of ability by the Holy Spirit distributed to every Christian for the purpose of increasing and building up the body of Christ. Now, as we look at this passage beginning in verse 12, Paul explains our spiritual oneness, that is, of the body of Christ, by comparing it to the parts of a physical body, a physical human body. I mean, I don't know, some of you may know that are in the medical field how many parts make up a human body. I guess we get to the cellular level, it's, it's, uh, it'd be innumerable. But you think of each limb and organ, every part is diverse. Uh, it is not identical to another part, but as a whole. And these diverse parts make up a unified body. How do we get into that body? 
Well, verse 13, it's not the easiest verse to understand, but he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You ask, as I ask, what does that mean? He's not talking here about water baptism, you know, the sacrament of baptism. He's talking about being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And the emphasis in the verse is the Spirit. For in one Spirit we were all baptized. That's where the emphasis is. So the Holy Spirit is the entity into which we as believers are baptized. He says all Christians have been made to drink of one Spirit. Imagine, if you will, he's he's taking the picture like here's a glass of water. And if you drink that glass of water, you take the water into yourself. In the same way, when we drink of the Spirit, when we come to faith in Christ, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, we take the Spirit into ourselves. We are, to use a Christian term, indwelt. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we are spiritually joined together as believers. It's not an organization that we, a church, the body of Christ is not an organization we sign up for and join. It's not a club. We are, we are adopted into his family, and so we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of that, he repeats something he said earlier. There are no, none of these divisions between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free. He says all alike are baptized into one body. And so this unity in the body of Christ transcends all other divisions. Now, with the events of this week, um, there were numerous articles written and posted online to pastors why, you know, the need to preach about racism in our churches. And I thought, I don't need to change anything in the sermon. Look at this passage. It just says we are one, whether slave or free. Those were major divisions in the Roman Empire. Jew and Gentile were huge, huge racial divides between a Jew and a non-Jew. And yet Paul says we, we are made one. I, I remember hearing Billy Graham interviewed years and years ago, and he was asked on this program, he said, if there was one sin from all your travels in all the world, all the countries you preached in, if there's one sin you could do away with on the planet, what would it be? And he said racism. It's everywhere. When I traveled to Eastern Europe, I, I remember how seeing it between nationalities, but, and everybody hated the gypsies. The, and... and then uh, when I was teaching the Chinese students a few years ago, I asked them, as we talked about, uh, I forgot what the passage was, but I said, what are the racial issues, what are the racial divides in your country, in China? And one of the kids, a kid from Vietnam, he said, oh, well, everybody knows the Chinese hate, and he, he named another Asian country, which I won't do that right now. But I, I saw that we may think of it in terms of black or white or I mean, there's truly been no more oppressed group in our nation than the Native American Indian. I mean, if anyone has been really uh, uh, treated harshly, it's them. But racism, um, for a Christian, it makes no sense. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, Being a Christian, because now I'm one with this person, so regardless of their nationality or whether we speak the same language, even our, 
I didn't know this was, uh, I had not noticed, but the passage in Revelation there at the end of time, people from every nation and tribe uh, and, and language will be standing before the throne. So that's what Paul is telling them. We are all part, and Corinth was filled with people. It was a port city, so there were people from all over the world that came there like any port city. And he says, we, we are one. We are different members of one body. So what is the church? It is a group of people who share the same life. We belong to the same Lord. We are filled with the same spirit. We're given the same gifts by the same Lord who are intended to function together to change the world by the life of God. Well, he goes on in verses 14 and following. I'm not going phrase by phrase, but he gives this picture uh, that the body uses different parts with different functions in order to grow and to thrive. And so apparently in Corinth there were disputes. There were disputes concerning certain people with certain gifts elevating, seeing themselves as more superior than those who did not have as public gifts. Maybe the person who was the great orator or the great evangelist or the great teacher in public with his public gift was either too highly esteemed by someone with what seemed to be a lowly gift, like just helping out behind the scenes, or either this person looked down on them. Do you ever feel small in the body of Christ? Uh, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, it's probably the rare person here that doesn't deal at times with thinking, God has no use for me. I am of no significance in the body of Christ, either because of my giftedness or because of my life. I mean, I'm a train wreck. I'm just a mess. God can't use me. He wouldn't use me. Hey, uh, don't look around now, but we're all train wrecks. <laughs> uh, I heard a speaker when we had a Wednesday Bible study and there at the table. He started off by saying studies today that say one in four people are, are very mentally disturbed. Look around the table at the other three people, and if they look normal, it's you. <laughs> uh, I would say it's all of us. It's all of us. So in verses 15 and 16, he takes the parts of the body and imagines if they could talk. Here's the foot. And it sees the hand. And it begins to think and to say, well, I, no one ever puts gold rings on me, the foot says. Well, at least not, not that many people. Some do. Uh, I'm not washed before meals, the foot says, comparing itself with the hand. When people greet each other, they don't shake me like they do their hands. When they say goodbye, they don't wave me like they do the hand or the ear. He says, look at the ear. And it looks at the eye and says, well, I don't, I don't get to wear sunglasses on a sunny day for protection. She never puts makeup around me to enhance the way I look like she does her eyes. I must not be important. Our feet and ears, less important than eyes or hands no they're all vital to the body of course that's what he's saying and so every member of the body of christ performs a significant and indispensable function in the entire body when we first moved here years ago i half of my time was spent uh, serving on the church staff as a campus minister at mercer now i had been a campus minister with our denomination with RUF for five years before we moved here and because of my background and RUF National put interns here they'd never done that before with with a person who wasn't a full-time campus minister so each year we had a different 
guy that came and he served full time uh, uh, with me in that ministry. Well, I can't remember whether it's the second or third year, we, a guy named Philip. He's a pastor now in Mississippi, Philip Palmer Tree. Philip came and he was uh, very bright. He was a tremendous writer. In fact, he was asked, he, he wrote a letter to the editor of the student newspaper. I, some of you Mercer students, I don't remember what it's called. What's that? The cluster. Uh, is it still called that? Okay, all right, thanks. I, thanks, I've learned something today. Uh, and Philip wrote a column in, and they said, would you write a weekly or a, a column regularly in the cluster whenever it came out? And he entitled it Up the Wrong Tree. His name was Philip Palmer Tree. And it was just kind of a commentary on culture. And it was brilliant. It really was. In fact, one of the most theologically liberal professors called him one day and said, would you come meet me at my office? And he went by, and the professor said, the only reason I read that paper is to read your column. And, uh, but Philip, Philip was extremely gifted in that area, but he, he, he would have said he was more comfortable writing than he was standing in front of a group and speaking. And uh, he was one that had great one-to-one -one conversations, but he, he wasn't a, a big group person. So one day he and I were talking, and he had, he had been meeting regularly with a student whose name I've completely forgotten. I'll just call him Tom. And I think Tom was a sophomore, and Tom was a nominal Christian trying to decide whether he really wanted to walk with Christ or not. Well, Philip would go by his dorm room, and they would meet really every week. They would look at some scripture together. They would pray together, and they, he became a, uh, a trusted friend. Well, one day, Philip and I were talking, and I could tell he felt kind of like, really, you know, there's not a whole lot to show for me being here this year that I've been an intern these nine months. And I said, Philip... I just, and someone had said something similar like this to me. I said, let's just take Tom. Now, does anybody else pray for him like you do that you know of? No. Does anyone go by his dorm room and meet with him regularly to pray with him and talk about Christ and so forth? No. Does, uh, does he open up with anybody else to talk about these things with anybody else but you? No. I said, okay. So there are roughly 7 billion people on the planet, and you are the only person God has put in his life for this purpose. That makes it pretty significant, doesn't it? Well, I think we should all see that, that you, have, you and I have uh, opportunities for service, to use our gifts, uh, to, to show mercy, what, what, whatever it may be, that are unique to you. And if, if we think... Well, if only, man, if only Robbie Zacharias was here, he could answer that hard question I've been asked. If only so-and-so was here that can share the gospel so well, it would make a difference. Guess what? God put you there, not, not that other person, because he has prepared you for that moment. So that's what Paul is saying, and he goes on, and he, he, he says, well, what, all right, let's, let's take the, the real obvious gifts or body parts. What if the whole body, he says in verse 17, was an eye? I mean, when you look at a person, typically the eyes are what you notice. And they say, what if the whole body was an eye? What good would that be? Or what if the whole body was an ear? I bet it would hear pretty well. <laughs> but 
It couldn't get around. There would be no sense of smell either, he says. So God has put multiple organs and parts of it in his body because there are multiple tasks to be done. God is the designer, and he arranges the parts as he wants them to be. Even as he decided the stomach should be at one place in the body and the heart and the kidneys and lungs and so forth, he has made you to serve a unique role at a unique place in his body. I love to read about history. I'm getting ready to give you about three illustrations from history. Uh, Missions history, the 18th century, was one of the greatest times of of outreach in fulfilling the great helping to fulfill the Great Commission all of history. I love to read about that. But guess what, Chip? God didn't have you born in that time. I'm right here, right now. And you and I are to serve God in our generation at the present time. You ever heard of a man named Robert Morrison? Has nothing to do with the cafeterias, you know, for those. But Robert Morrison, and you probably have never heard of him unless you have an extreme interest in uh, missions, the history of Christian missions. Robert Morrison was born in 1782 in England, and at age 16, he joined the Presbyterian Church, and he desired to pursue missionary work as a vocation. And knowing that was his goal, what he wanted to pursue, He chose to study things that he thought would help him as a missionary. He studied medicine. He studied astronomy. And then while he was in London, he studied Mandarin Chinese. He was ordained in January of 1807. He sailed for China by way of North America. During that time, he was married. He arrived. He and his new bride arrived in February of 1809. So here he is, 25 years old, arriving in China. And that same day that he arrives in China, he's appointed to be a translator with a commercial enterprise, the East India Company, one an international company at that time. Uh, not a Christian organization, it was, it was strictly commerce. So he's a translator. And that gave him a legal footing into the country. So he divided his time between doing his commercial work with the East India Company And then he also did his missionary work. Well, what was his missionary work? Was he a preacher? No, not really. He was a translator. And so he began to study, as he had already learned some Mandarin, he began a translation of the New Testament into Chinese. And it was published in 1814. Then he and his colleague, William Milne, founded the Anglo-Chinese College in 1818, and together they began to work on an English-Chinese dictionary. It took them years to finish, eight years span, three large volumes to create the Chinese-English dictionary. Like I said, he was not, he was not a preacher. Uh, he was a translator. So he translated the first Chinese-English dictionary and the Chinese-English New Testament. Now, if you think of missionaries to China from the English-speaking world, most of you probably think of one name. Who is it? Speak to me. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor. Books have been written about Hudson Taylor. Several different biographies about Hudson Taylor. Now, Hudson Taylor came along uh, later in the 1800s. He was born in 1832, and he died... The year that Welsh revival was going on, I told you about last, last week, in 1905. Now, he was a Protestant Christian missionary from England. He comes to China. He founds the China Inland Mission, which is now called OMF. 
He spends 51 years in China. And the, re, the ministry he headed up was responsible for bringing 800 missionaries to the country who began 125 schools, which resulted in 18,000 Christian conversions, as well as the establishment of 300 stations of work and more than 500 local helpers in all 18 provinces of China. Robert Morrison... Hudson Taylor. Here's the eye. Hudson Taylor. Here's the kidney. Robert Morrison. You never see it. Not public. Don't even know his name. What if Hudson Taylor had, what if the eye had gone to China and Robert Morrison had not translated that dictionary and that New Testament? I, I, I dare imagine that uh, whatever his ministry would have been would have been on a much smaller scale because all that work had been done before they arrived. So each of us, God is the one, he's saying in verse 18, that God gives the gifts to those the way he desires it. In verses 21 to 26, and I'll be brief here, he's talking about that we are to be interdependent, not independent. And now he has the body parts talking to each other. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. I am self-sufficient. I don't need you in my life. I can be a, uh, a lone cowboy as a Christian. I don't need the church. I don't need a local fellowship. The various body parts need one another. What good is a forearm without an elbow? What good is a hand without a shoulder? You are indispensable. Every part of the body is indispensable. Why has he done this? Verse 25 says, So that there should be no division in the body, but each part having equal concern for each other. How do we care for one another best? By functioning according to God's will and helping others to function with their giftedness, God's will for them. Verse 26 says, If one member suffers, it affects every member. If one member is healthy, it, it helps the others to be strong. Jamie Scott. Jamie Scott is a little boy trying out for the play at his elementary school. He had his heart set on being one of the main characters in the play, but his mother feared that he would not be chosen. So on the day that the parts were awarded to all the children, Jamie's mother brought a friend with her, and they went to pick him up just in case he was upset and terribly disappointed. But much to her surprise, when Jamie saw his mother, he rushed up to her. His eyes were shining with pride and excitement. And he said, guess what, Mom? I've been chosen to clap and cheer. Most of us in the body of Christ have been chosen to clap and cheer. It's behind the scenes, but it's vitally important. I'll close with one other illustration. I told you I'm going to hit the 1800s pretty hard right now, but... In the latter 1700s about missions. It's been a while since I mentioned this. It was 200, 210 years ago, there's a shoe repairman in, in England, and he, he's concerned about the unreached peoples in the world. And he puts a large map of the world up in front of his workplace where he cobbles shoes. And he would pray while he worked, he would pray for peoples of different nations. 
His name was William Carey. Uh, today he's referred to as the father of modern missions. Now through William Carey's influence, Great Britain's first missionary society was formed. He went to, mission, to be a missionary in India. He spent 42 years there. Much like Robert Marson, he and his co-workers translated the entire Bible into 25 Indian languages and the New Testament into 15 more. So 40 languages, imagine, that they translate the New Testament into. Many, many books have been written about William Carey. Colleges have been named after William Carey. But to my knowledge, and correct me if you know otherwise, nothing has been written, no book has been written about his little-known sister who was a bedridden cripple. From India, he would write letters to her every week telling her all about the details of their work, about the problems with the work, about the relationships with the, within the, the work, hour after hour, week after week. And so for 50 years, 42 of those years while he was in India, for 50 years, she would read those letters and pray, lifting up those concerns to the Lord in prayer. So from the human standpoint, I really wonder who was responsible for the effectiveness of William Carey's ministry. You and I can have a worldwide impact just by praying for others, interceding on a regular basis and serving them. I have two more pages that someday will come out, but I'm going to use one last paragraph. John Calvin said, Whatever ability a faithful Christian may possess, he ought to possess it for his fellow believers, and he ought to make his own interests subservient to the will, to the well-being of the church in all sincerity. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that it's only through Christ, not through our own efforts, not through our own moral code, that we are made right with you, that we are adopted into your family. Uh, we know that you said as many as received him, as many as received Jesus to them, you gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in your name. We pray that with the time we have on this earth, whether that be days or hours or decades, that we will serve you as part of the body of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.